After weeks of utterly ignoring the coronavirus on the show, last week we talked about the policy prescriptions, and now we're going to do that thing I do. We're going to get a little bit deeper on that topic on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Humble is not the word that usually gets used for but it was really an attitude of humility that kept me from diving in headlong with lots of opinions on this virus, either on my own show or on the morning show, where I often get to host on his radio talk 91.9, 92.9. Basically, I didn't talk about it and got creative with other things because I was trying to recognize I don't know anything. So why on earth would I talk about it? Now, as we were months into it, I started to form some strong opinions as we gave last week, and now I am doing that, that thing that I so regularly do, that once I decide to ruminate on a given topic, or, or whether that be theological, political, philosophical, heck, I mean, I do that with some sports topics sometimes, where I just, my mind gets a hold of it, we chew it over until I, I get into some real depth on, uh, and some deeper meanings, because that's what we do here, right? We're dedicated to smarter, deeper and better talk about everything on the Corey Act Show. And that's what we're going to do today on this coronavirus thing, is looking at some of the philosophy and ethics around the response. And then I hope we'll get to do something else, but this might take the entire show, is implications of coronavirus stuff. Okay, so with all that said, uh, I already told you that you're listening to the Corey Act Show. And gave you the tagline, what else am I? I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. And I do suspect, I should give this quick word out really quickly. There's coming... A time here in South Carolina, I suspect to be quite soon, where churches are going to be given the go-ahead if they want to meet, they can meet. And there's going to be some churches who decide not to out of coronavirus concerns, and there are some churches that are going to dive in like nothing ever happened uh, and just do their services the same. And some are probably going to find go somewhere in between. Like They're going to meet, but maybe not do communion or, and not pass an offering plate or, and maybe give some guidance to members. There's going to be all various and sundry ways to get back to church. And church people, can we go ahead and decide now not to judge each other? Not to be, to, to, to say of people who just go back to normal that they don't care about human life and for the people who don't meet that, we, that, that they're not pagans and don't value the church and the people who come together in some other ways, whatever uh, epithet you would throw at them. So just a quick word of caution for all of us. Let's have some grace for church leadership as they make choices that are not going to be easy coming up here very soon as churches are allowed to meet once again. Thank you for listening to His Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9 on Saturday morning for the Corey Truax Show or wherever you find the podcast. Thank you. Here we go. Here is the statement coming out of coronavirus discussions that's really starting to get to me on an ethical, moral, and logical level. If it saves one life. That is the, it's, it's like the last resort of the intellectually deficient argument. Not the intellectually deficient person, but when the argument is bad, you ultimately will just retreat to, well, if it saves one life. That's called single factor analysis. If you do this in a management course, you do this sometimes in economics courses, you'll certainly do it if you get into the business world. You, you always want to be involved in multi-factor analysis. What are 
all the factors. What's everything going on? And not only am I allowed to consider everything, including life and death, and, and measure that against all of the factors, I'm a bad policymaker, I'm a bad politician, I'm a bad leader, a bad manager, if I don't consider multi-factor analysis when making my decisions. But there are those that are trying to simplify the conversation to single-factor analysis to, if it just saves one life. I'm going to illustrate that to you with Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo, as as best I can tell, has done a a good job, a, a great job up there in New York, they got hardest hit. That's not his fault in my estimation. It seems that even the, the country's kind of rallied around him as a Democratic governor, as a, as a figure that, that's been a stabilizing force. So I, I have a, a somewhat some, – he's just somebody who tried to lead one of those, the country's largest states through a crisis. I don't want to give a ton of criticism to his handling thereof because there might not even be any criticism to give. I don't know what I would have done any differently. But philosophically, he is a good illustration of this point that I'm making because he recently made this argument, this if it saves one life argument. So I want to play that for you from a press conference and respond to it as we go. Here is the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. The cure can't be worse than the illness itself. What is your response to that? The illness is death. What is worse than death? What if somebody commits suicide because they can't? Pay their bills. Yeah, but the illnesses may be my death as opposed to your death. You said they said the cure is worse than the illness. The illness is death. First, no, it's not. The illness is COVID 19. It's a disease that is horrific and horrible and has been, has led to the demise of hundreds of thousands, maybe maybe a million worldwide by now. And the worst case scenario is that it's going to have something like a 5% death rate. I, the, the, we don't have enough evidence yet to, to say what it is. You've got experts from University of Washington saying 0.2% all the way to folks saying it could be 5%. So the illness isn't death. That's just not true. This is an illness. It's a bad one. It's worse, worse than the normal flu. It's probably not going to have the death rate of some kind of cancers. Like there's, it is, guys, it's not a supervillain. It's a virus, all right? If you get it, the likelihood, vast likelihood, is you're not going to die. So we, this, this attitude first, we, we have turned COVID-19, which is horrific, which is bad, into something so sinister that we, we are now equating it with death itself, and it is not death itself. It's a disease that you'll get and probably recover from. How can the cure be worse than the illness if the illness is potential death? But what if the the economy failing... Worse than death? ...is equals death. Very Because of mental illness, the the people stuck at home... No, it doesn't. It doesn't equal death. So... Again, you're, if one, it's not death. It's not even likely death if you get COVID-19. And so that's when you get into multi-factor analysis. As we do with lots of things, there are lots of decisions. Very literally, almost every policy still allows some death. You can go to the absurd ones if you want. Like I don't, I don't like the one that's been used out there that if we got rid of cars 
here's all the hundreds of thousands of people that would live every year, but we still drive. I, I think that's a, it's an immature argument in that I would argue it is the, the automobile, it's the, the combustion engine that has allowed us to have such a population. It's because we're able to move so much resources and food around that people aren't dying of starvation and poverty like they were before the, uh, the internal combustion engine. So, like, if you took away cars, yeah, there'd be less crashes, but we'd also not have, have what we needed to run the world. So, let me just give you different analogies. I'll take the swimming pool. Hundreds of people, usually children, which is the more horrific thing, right? Children dying is terrible. They die every year because of pools. Bottom line, if we banned pools, they wouldn't die. But we as a people decided there's more than one factor. There is apparently an amount of joy and recreation that the vast majority of people get that we are willing to take the risk to have the pools and tell everyone, you should be careful with your pool. And we put some rules and regulations on them. So th- this, I, it, it is almost like dying of COVID-19 is particularly the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. There's lots, there's lots of ways to die. And we allow, we, allow, we allow recreational things where people die. People skydive. People bungee jump. I mean, I can go back, back to the swimming pool. We allow them because living for the sake of living, philosophically, it is not, it's not worthwhile. Just continuing to breathe isn't a life worth living. If you go from the Christian perspective, what's the purpose of life? What are we here? What's the chief end of humankind? Well, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We don't do that just by breathing. We go, we do, we learn, we cultivate, we subdue the earth, we, we multiply and fill the earth. We take part in in business, and and the arts. Like, we we build something. We build civilizations and cultures. And so when when you're saying there's nothing worse than death, well, yes, there is. Living, there's there's a type of living that's not worth it. And that is what people are being asked to do, at least for some period of time, is stop living. Stop living a worthwhile life. And so all I'm asking for is a little bit of nuance to say, no, just one person dying isn't a good enough reason to shut down the entire country. That's one. And two, let's stop equating COVID-19 with death itself. Economic hardship. Yes, very bad. Not death. Emotional stress from being locked in a house. Very bad. Not death. Uh, um, Domestic violence on the increase. Very bad. Not death. Now, real quickly on the economic hardship one. We're now seeing from the UN, they're saying that one of the consequences of COVID-19 might be the death of over a million people in what we call the global south, so Latin America, mostly Africa, because when Western economies disintegrate, like ours have and, and in Western Europe, there are cascading effects. There are parts of the world dependent on two things. One is the generosity of Western governments and Western people to give things to the global south. I'm talking just food aid, like the funding of the UN to to do food aid to those places. But then second, they are dependent on our demand, that if we aren't buying the stuff they do make, then we are talking about poverty that often leads to starvation and leads to death. Remember the natural state of man. 
the natural state of man is wantonness. The, it is likely, if we did all the statistics for all of time, for all the people who have died on this earth, one of, if not the most common reason people die is poverty and the things that come with it. It's being exposed to the elements and it's being, it's starving to death. That's how people died for thousands of years. And so there's this, this other idea that, well, uh, economic hardship, hardship, yeah, it's bad, but it doesn't lead to death. Yes, it does. It may not lead to all that much death that you can see in the United States, but if this is a global pandemic, then we should talk about global consequences. There's a global consequence to shutting down our economy, and it will kill other people in a different way. This is, again, with COVID-19. It's one of the ways to die. And so now we're going to have to manage it. We, now we have a new thing to add to the list. We were going to die of an accident. We were going to die of cancer. We were going to die of things related to obesity, like heart disease. We were all going to die of something. Or maybe it was a flu or some other terrible disease. Well, now we've added a new one. Here's one way to die, and we're going to manage that one just like we manage all the others. It, what I, I was about to say, it's not special. It is special. It's new. It is particularly harsh. All of that's true. Ne- nevertheless, we, ca- we have to manage it like we would everything else. I'll give you the rest of Andrew Cuomo. And not death of someone else. See, that's what we have to factor into this equation. Yeah, it's your life. Do whatever you want. But you're not responsible for my life. You have a responsibility to me. I get that argument. And as we start to reopen the country, that, by the way, that last part was really the only part of what he said that I found to be intellectually honest and uh, that, that handled the topic the way it should be handled with some nuance. As we reopen, there has to be some onus and responsibility on the people who are so fearful of getting in and dying. So you, you are responsible, too, for if you're going to go out in the world where other people are, because we have to do that. We can't do what we're doing right now forever. We've reached, really, a breaking point. We, can't, we cannot stay in our homes forever. So now you do need to have some responsibility on what you do. If you feel like you need to wear a mask, wear gloves, carry around sanitizer, or if you feel like it's not, there's not a way for you to be out in the world safely, then don't go. Don't go out into the world. But let's call that group, it's a, it's a certain number, whatever that number is that says, if I get this, it's too big of a risk. It is a tiny subset of the entire population. And it's one of my big themes. You can't make policy that affects 330 million people for the effect of 1% of them or less than 1% of them. And so while that last part Cuomo gives there is at least rational well, and a logical argument, hey, you might affect me. Okay, I hear that. I'm going to take all the precaution I can, but you've got to do that too if you want to come out into the world. Because there's lots of ways in which I might kill you, inadvertently. But you came out into the world, so now you've taken upon the risk of coming out into the world, just like I did. Because you might kill me in some other inadvertent way. But I took, I took that risk upon me. That was my responsibility. I went out into the world. All right, so I got really frustrated with this. If it only saves one life. None of us believe that. That is not a thing any human, any sentient human being actually believes. It's a dishonest argument. We do lots of things. that, that We allow lots of things that if we stopped them, it would save one life. So we don't believe that. We have to have multi-factor analysis. And part of that's just growing up and being adults about how we talk through these things. When we come back, I have another piece of audio I want to respond to around COVID-19 and some philosophical and more deeply ethical implications there too. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. 
Welcome back to the Corey Shuak Show. Do yourself, really, me a favor. You're not really going to enhance your life all that much if you do this favor for me. Hey, connect on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That was the thing I was telling you to do. I benefit. You might benefit some, too. And thanks for sticking with the show on His Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9. On any of the social media platforms, you can find me, Corey Truax. Just look for my very weird name. You will find me there. And you can connect to the show at Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. Next. I just went through some Andrew Cuomo audio to dispel the intellectually immature position of if it saves one life. One of the primary symbols, the seminal symbols of intellectually immature arguments and thinking in the modern world is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she said something that I would usually ignore. I have largely ignored her. Uh, I think I think she was almost like a creation of conservative media because they want her to be the face of liberalism in the Democratic Party. Um, and, and I think she's, just, she's not a deep thinker. She doesn't know much. She's not very smart. And so... I like to engage with smart things. She's not one of them. She's not a smart person. But I, she said something that was uh, dumb enough that I want to talk, respond to it. She said this on some show, some YouTube show. So here is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's a lot that we could be doing right now, but ultimately, the, I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America... Does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we- well, real quickly, I don't ever want to defend the president on anything, so I need to defend the point, not him. Liberation is in part, yes, going to work. Liberation is living the life I want, being free to go live. And I know this is, for some reason, she doesn't quite get this. For some of us, we like work. It's part of the image of God on us. He set us in the garden to work it. That's part of the human condition. We find some meaning and some affirmation in the work that we do, whether it be with our minds or our hands. Yes, AOC, part of liberation is going to work because it's us getting to do that which we want to do. We you know, have this discussion about going, going back or reopening. I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. Are you seriously arguing that people should just stop working? Like you're allowed to go back to work, but don't. So let's, let's go through that practically, honey. So people decide they're not going to work anymore when we reopen the economy. How's that work out for their family? We, we got these little $1,200 checks that went out to everybody. Uh, we, we, we did the mass unemployment thing. Eventually, we'll have to start minimizing that. How do they actually stay with a roof over their head and feed their families? We, the taxpayer, and the taxpayers of the next 100 years can't do it forever, honey. We can't pay for everybody. They... We all are responsible for ourselves. So she's got some idea here where she actually just thinks work is bad. No one wants to work. No, we actually, most of us do. Most of us actually, again, it's part of our our human condition. We want to go earn our own living. We don't want, want to be taken care of by some nanny state. 
We don't want to be taken care of by some government. We want to provide for ourselves as part of being independent. That's who we are as Americans. Now, second thing she had there, this idea of she has, she has no dignity around work, and work, should have, work does have dignity to it. The, the scenario she painted, working 70-hour weeks just to put food on the table. L- listen, up until this, up until COVID wrecked everything, that person exists, like that, I'm sure that person exists that's working 70-hour weeks and is only getting by but that's not 1% of the American population. It, not 1% is the situation. They're working 70 hours a week, even at most minimum wages. You're, you're not struggling that way. It, to the extent that if someone was, if someone was working 70-hour weeks and was truly impoverished, I would love to see their budget and see where their money was going. Maybe that's what they need is some money management. This is, this is how I feel about people often who are stressed for money and make decent money. Well, it's probably because you're spending it improperly. You're, you're not being a, a judicious steward of your resources. I, listen, I, I grew up in a situation where when we got back from Africa's missionaries, I watched my dad work four different jobs at a time. I watched him work. He was he had a short stint as an orkin man at the pest killing company. I uh, saw him deliver pizzas. I saw him do lots of different, different jobs. I've seen that. And even when he, that was the case, it wasn't 70 hour weeks. It was probably close to 60-hour weeks, and we were, we were fine. We were more than getting by. I mean, we weren't, weren't living in opulence, but we were fine. And that was at a time of a, a decent economy, but not like what, what we had leading up to COVID-19. And so this, this idea that there's just this mass underclass out there that's working 70-hour weeks just to get by, they exist. That's, that's a person that exists. But it's not at a number where the policy prescription would be some kind of workforce strike. You know, there was a study on this from, I think it's Brookings Institute, but it's been used in academia. So we're not talking about just some right-wing organization. And Brookings, for that record, is for the record, is libertarian anyway. So there's plenty of things they are for. Conservatism is not a part of. But they found that people that do at least these three things, I'm going to give you three, three ways to avoid poverty in the United States. And poverty is, is defined by the poverty line, uh, what the federal government uses as the poverty line for determinations of social programs and all that. If you will finish high school, work 40 hours a week, and don't have kids until you're married. Of all the people that do that in the United States of America, 2% are under the poverty line. 75% are firmly in the middle class, which now means it's 52 or 53 grand, I think is the middle class number before we call you middle class. So there's, there's also some, some portion of this that has to be a level of personal responsibility. If you don't do those three things, you're not a person that we can just forget about and not have some kind of aid for. I understand. That's I'm, I'm I got gotcha. you. I'm, I'm I'm on board. But there's some personal responsibility. Finish high school, work 40 hours a week, and don't have kids until you're married. This is what often is what's causing poverty is people that are in poverty often don't work 40 hours a week. They're not working full time. And we have even as a government set up perverse incentives 
to where if you start making a certain amount or working too much, then we pull back on the uh, on the government program, and so now you don't even want when you don't want to work. There has to be a, a better system, and I've got some ideas on that. We don't have time for it today. And the, uh, one of the big drivers of poverty is single parenthood. It's it's mostly women who are having to take care of a child on their own because there's a bunch of garbage men out there. But also, I don't know if everyone understands or recognizes you, you can choose to have a kid, even if you're a, a woman. You, you have that choice, too. You're part of the discussion and the decision-making there. And so we have... the. We have AOC here trying to paint this picture of someone working 70 hours a week to just put food on the table. Not according to the statistics, not, not according to the facts on the ground. Facts on the ground, if you'll just work 40 hours a week, not have kids outside of marriage and finish high school, you're to only 2% of those people are actually living in poverty. One more thing from her, her screed there was about opening up. I want to just... I guess it's not another thing. That was what she's talking about, reopening. And she has a problem with opening up, meaning going back to work. But ultimately, that shows she has a... She looks down on work. And that's that's part of the left-wing, secular, progressive worldview that it is important to note. Work itself is a problem. We don't want to... we We don't want work. Work is to be denigrated. But it's actually one of the things God created us to do and to to find some... not ultimate meaning by any stretch, but the, the work of our hands, the work of our minds being that which provides for us, that's part of our humanity. It's what makes us a person, makes us human. And she actually, that, that, that worldview denigrates that. So the other thing about opening up, that's what I was trying to get to. So we're going to be doing that here soon. I wouldn't be surprised if my university sends us back to our, back to our offices here very soon. And now there's even retail spaces that are opening back up in South Carolina. Georgia got a lot of fanfare for uh, for opening up. By the way, Colorado has a Democratic governor doing the same things that Georgia's doing, and they're not getting all the hate for it. And what I'm finding is this thing the American brain does, and it's probably not unique to Americans, is being very black and white and just A or B. There's only the one thing or the other, or, or the other and there's never been nuance ever. So talk about this COVID-19, either you care about human life or you care about the economy and you can't care about both. Either you think this virus is, not, is ultimately not going to be as bad as we thought, or you think it's going to be a pandemic that kills a bunch of the country, or, 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 or you don't. Well, no, I mean, there's, there's some shades of gray. There's some places in the middle to balance. You can go to elections on this. Either you love this candidate and you hate the other one and think the other one is a demon or you think the other candidate's the demon and you think this one is the angel. And so a lot of us just go, no, oh, no, that's not how it works. Okay, buddy? Like, we're going to have some nuance here. We're going to think like adults. And the same thing with this opening up. There are, there's a group that says, if, if you don't open up, you don't start reopening the economy, it's because you're fearful and it's because you're, uh, you, yeah, you are a coward. You don't, and also you don't care about people's livelihoods. And then you have the other side that is you don't care about you don't care about COVID nineteen. You don't care about this disease. Okay, there's also some gradations in between. It's and even how we open up. There's because we do have to. This can't keep working. We can't do that. We can't keep people shut down. 
in what's going to ultimately, fairly quickly, become the creation of mass poverty again. We can't do that. So we have to do what the rest of the world is doing. We must reopen. So then the question is, how do we go about that as safely as is possible? And that is taking into account multi-factor analysis. We have to be people looking circumspectly at all the different possibilities and looking around the world for how it's going in other places. And so even in opening up, it, opening up doesn't mean, all right, everything's back to normal. Go to concerts, go to movies. That's what you should do. And when you go to a restaurant, everyone get you know sh- shoulder to shoulder at the bar and eat, eat out of the same, uh, I don't know, bowl of peanuts. I don't know what people have at bars. Uh, at, and out of the same bowl and the same, same hands are in there. Let's know. Not, that's not opening up. And also staying closed shouldn't have to be everybody in your house, stay in your house, no one go anywhere. No, there's gradation. And in different parts of the country, there should be different ways that you do that. Georgia's the one getting all the hate here, but the way Georgia opened up was with a massive list of requirements about, like for, for businesses, for example, that they want to reopen. And they said, any of your employees that can do tele, telework or, or work from home, have them keep doing that. Now, if they can't, if it is going to the store, then they, they can, but they need to wear uh, its masks. There has, there has to be so much. Uh, no, I think the masks are optional, but... Hand sanitizing stations were not optional. Um, instructions to not have any kind of handshakes, no contact. If you are sick with anything, stay home. Like there was a lot of guidance given before Georgia said, "All right, let's try to get moving again." And we, so we just got to have what AOC refuses to have here, and what a lot of Americans refuse to have: nuance, recognizing there's a lot of things to care about here, and you don't. Just fling open the doors, full open, fully open the economy, because you could end up with a health crisis. And then, you, and and in the other direction, that the folks that are saying what I'm saying that we do need to reopen, they're not folks that disregard human life. Now, this leads me to one more thought, and this works out well because I have only a couple more minutes in this segment. I think there was a an even further misunderstanding than I thought people had about what bending the curve or flattening the curve meant. The, I've said before, so quick, I'll quickly say, the point that we were told of flattening the curve was so that you don't overwhelm the healthcare system. The point was, we think a lot of people are going to get this, and if you all get it at the same time, we can't care for everybody. But if we'll spread it out over a period of time, and people get it that way, then okay, then we can, uh, we'll be able to handle it, we'll have the, the capacity. But even that language flattening the curve, it shows me, Again, how bad America is, Americans are at math. I talked about this about a month ago. One of our problems in dealing with COVID-19 in terms of the news is you start hearing numbers but out of context and no one knows how to do the math. No one knows the numerator and the, no, the, and the denominator. They just hear big number of cases and then this many dead. And that, that, we don't have the ability, it seems, in lar- at large to go, oh, there's 330 Americans. All right, so this many have it. All right, so that's the next level. All right, so they've, they've been confirmed cases. Well, how many of the confirmed cases actually needed a hospital visit? All right, this many. How many of the hospital visits needed like a respirator? Okay, only this many. How many on the respirator died? Or how many people died without a respirator? And those numbers continue to dwindle and dwindle, and it ends up sounding crazy because it's 100 and some odd in a day. All right, well, that's sad. Every one of them sad. There's also 330 million of us, okay? So let's put the numbers in context. But the numbers in context on the curve, flattening the curve, if, if, you, 
if you would picture a bar graph in your mind, and you see the uh, in the, the the bottom the what's that, the y-axis, the y-axis is time. So January 2000, February 2000, March 2000, April 2000, May 2000. That's time. And the x-axis, the one that goes vertical, is how many cases there are. When you flatten the curve, you don't actually change the number of people under the curve. As that curve goes across the page, what you're wanting it wanting is that it be more evenly distributed, that it doesn't have a big spike. But the same number stays under. You just distribute it over the time. Because there's got to be an assumption. We're all probably going to come in contact with this thing. If not all 330 million of us, a lot of us are going to. That was never the point of flattening the curve. It was not trying to keep people from getting it. It was to keep people from getting it all at the same time. Right? And then, so now that we've, we have successfully done that, now we just move towards the future and see what kind of, what kind of precautions we have to take as we get back into an economy that's open and working. When you come back, I got a couple other thoughts related to the response to COVID-19. And then I went on a hike here recently where I had a reflective thought I want to share with you. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome in for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for joining us on his radio talk, 91.9 and 92.9, or wherever you find the podcast. I am deeply grateful that you find the show and listen. A few more COVID-19-related thoughts, or at least thoughts related to our response to it. After that, I actually do have a one-listener question about vaccinating your kids I want to get to from Ben. And then I have this reflection on a hike I went on, and so just something I want to share with you. Those, those are the fun parts of the show is where I just have thoughts occur to me. And it's not part of the news. It's just my brain chewing on something. The, the last COVID-related note. One of the things I am noticing is that there are people willing to use this crisis for their other just general priorities. And we have to stop that. You cannot use this crisis, for example, to institute massive social programs that you've always wanted. If you've just always wanted gigantic government as, as, as daddy government to take care of everybody and you've got basically your Green New Deal and you're trying to use this as a reason to institute it for all time, that's immoral, it's irrational, it is, it, uh, it's a, it is illogical. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a lack of ethics in it. Like we need legislation, we need Congress, we need leadership to be acting on this crisis, not looking at it and going, oh, I wonder if this other thing I've always wanted, if I could just get, if I could use this as a reason to institute it and, and put it in for all, for all of time. The one that's bothering me the most right now is that there seems to be a movement afoot to, to use this as a, a way to bail out states who are really poorly run as a way to take federal government money, so that's money from all of us, from all of the taxpayers in the 50 states, and because all of it is basically getting digitized and or borrowed, it's borrowing it from the 50 states, the all 50 states' grandchildren and great-grandchildren to bail out some states who had very stupid systems, and it, it should be their responsibility to fix. 
So I'll use Illinois as the example. I remember a couple years ago, I did an episode where I, I talked about Illinois for about 15 minutes on their pension system. The, the Illinois had gone bankrupt. They have no money. They, they don't have enough money to run just police and, uh, what's the thing I'm thinking of, transportation. They're having to borrow it all. And they actually had, I'm almost positive they had to repeal their balanced budget amendment if they had one because they couldn't do it. They couldn't balance their budget. And the reason they couldn't balance their budget is because they had an irrational pension system. The pensions people were getting for being cops, teachers, things that we love in great, great, great positions, but the pension amounts were incredibly high. The, 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 the age at which you could retire was incredibly high. We actually, I remember that story. There were people that were retiring at 60 or before, a little bit before, in Illinois, taking their pension and just moving to Florida and, and getting another job, by the way. Like, they'd go ahead. Like, at 60, you still got some working years in you. I know some 60-year-olds, for example, at my gym, they're in definitely better physical condition, uh, even though I compete with those guys. But their mental acuity, they, they, I learned things from them. There's plenty of people in my life above 60 who teach me a lot. And so they were letting people retire at these early ages, and then they just go get another job, work for 10 more years while drawing this gigantic pension. All right, so that's Illinois' dumb problem. They should have done that. You know who it's not a problem for? The taxpayers of South Carolina. It's not even the taxpayers, the taxpayers of California who pay a ton of taxes. It's not the taxpayers of New York that need to take care of that. You, your, quote, leaders, your representatives in Illinois need to solve that. That seems to be happening in some other states. New York, despite all that tax revenue, spends all of it more. New Jersey spends one of the highest property tax rates in the country. They soak in all this money. They spend all of it and more. And they're trying to use this crisis to then be bailed out. Mitch McConnell, Republican Senate leader from Kentucky, his response was, well, they should just declare bankruptcy. I mean, that, okay, Mitch, but that, that might be a better, yep, that's a better solution than having the feds bail out everybody. That's, having the feds bail everyone out is the worst idea. But how about this? Get your fiscal house in order. Do that. One of the great things about states and government budgets is you don't have to fix it in one year. Set up a 10-year plan. Set up a yeah, 10 years is probably right to get everything. Maybe a little less. This is one of my, um, one of my favorite Rand Paul points. I, th- I think he, uh, he's put the math together that if we would cut the budget, the entire federal budget, by 1% every year, I think it is less than 10 years before we balance the budget. It's, and I, I don't remember how he did that, but maybe it's more than 1%. But it was one of those incremental things, just... Do it in increments, and you can get to a place where you can balance it. And so that's one of the things I've been seeing people do. It's getting on my nerves, and we got to stop that. we got to stop being people that use crises to try to institute our pet policies. I'm going to go ahead and go to the email here. Email from Ben. It's a little long, but basically he just wants to know my position on vaccines. He's recently found the show, and this is a very important topic to him. And so I... I tend not to wade into it for this reason. I find the vaccine people and the like the 
nursing mom versus formula people. And the there's a couple others. Uh, like the anti-chemicals in your food people, like the, the all-natural people. They are very emotionally attached to their position. And I don't know how many of those people I attract. <laughs> That's actually quite funny. I, I got to wonder how many anti-vacciners, I probably have a few anti-vacciner people because that tends to be an anti-government position and I'm fairly anti-government, but, but in a biblical way. Um, I don't know how many folks I have that are super all-natural or you, your kids must be breastfed, breastfed. I don't know how many I, I have on this feed, but I try to stay away from some of those things because I don't find them to be a super important topic and there's they cost more than you get. The cost is getting people very upset with you. And oh, there's one. The breastfeeding in public people. Like that's a discussion that for me has no real consequence. I don't, I don't really care about it much. I, I care very little. I think women should have some, I don't know, some wisdom. But like the anti-breastfeeding people in public and the pro-breastfeeding with uh, your baby in public, like there is a battle over that. And I don't care about it. I don't want to play. I don't want to be in the battle. I don't have a jersey. I'm not in. And so it's, I just stay out of it. Vaccines is one of those, but here we go. Been asked, and I ask you guys to ride into the show all the time, so here we go. If you are unfamiliar with the controversy, there's a group of people, anti-vaxxers by name, that think some very negative things about vaccines. The vaccines that your baby is given, your children are given, that I was given, I was even like extra super deep duper, like super mega Doppler vaccines because I was coming back and forth from Africa, so... When we were going to Africa, we had all kinds of needles stuck in us, stuck into us, and vice versa. So it was even more for me. There are some that will blame autism, the rise of autism on vaccines. I've seen some folks that link vaccines to certain types of allergies and other general health concerns. And then there's a group of people that may be less on the, I'm concerned about the health consequences of them, but there's just this idea that my kid is my kid, and I don't want the government being able to tell me what medical procedures my kid has to go through, because my kid is my kid, and I get to raise him how I want. I find a lot more sympathy with the second group of people, because parental rights are important. The, the, fund, the fundamental element to any society is the family. The fundamental element to any healthy society is going to be a father, a mother, and their offspring. That's the fundamental element to a healthy society. And government getting in the way of that, in the way of that in any way, is, is always a detrimental thing. It has a detrimental effect. Oh, boy. I guess controversially... I am very unconvinced by the scientific arguments by anti-vaxxers regarding the connection of other conditions, diseases from kids who have gotten vaccines. And I, when I argue, I'm often a jerk, so I'm trying not to sound like a jerk. But generally, my argument is the vast majority of people have been vaccinated we're talking, it's got to be well over 90% in the United States. And we're not, you, you would think, since we have some control groups here, uh, since we started requiring vaccinations decades ago, 
that if there were some some major connections, we would see them. There there might be a connection. It's it's um, affecting such small group of people that even if it's true, it's worth the side effect because we, what we're getting is no longer having to suffer through the worst diseases humans knew and used to kill people much too young. So it, let's say they're even correct, the anti-vaxxers. It's a worthwhile trade-off. The, the side effects we're getting aren't affecting a ton of people where those diseases were wiping people out. So that is my, my general thoughts on, on vaccines. But in terms of, because Ben here asks about parenting and having your kids vaccinated. Well, I, uh, I like liberty. I'm a big fan of freedom. And for, a, uh, and for a family, for a mom and a dad who've done the work and they've decided vaccinations are not for us, no one should force them. No, no government should have the ability to force them to do that. At the same time, there's consequences to every action. And so those parents also need to recognize the vast majority of people have made a different decision. And so then when it comes to access to certain government, even facilities or schools, I am open to the discussion that an, a non-vaccinated child may not be able to go to a public school. Even like, a, especially let's go with a public college where you're living there. There is a risk associated with that. And it's a risk that everyone else has to absorb because, again, that, that number, the anti-vaxxer number, the number of kids who haven't been vaccinated, it's a very small number. So I know, I know, I'll, I'll use uh, my, my main employer as an example here. At North Greenville, if a kid is not vaccinated, 18-year-old wants to move into the dorms, I think we would do that and we should. We're private. We have the ability. We can do what we want on that stuff. But there should be at least... There's got to be an adult recognition. I've made a decision. It's a minority decision. There might be some consequences to it. So, Ben, to your two questions on vac- on vaccinations. Nope, I don't think anyone should be forced to vaccinate their kids. But, two, there, I am very much open to then saying, but he, here are some consequences to that in terms of how the state interacts with you because we, we think you actually might have the ability to bring some pretty fairly bad diseases uh, upon the rest of us. Uh, I think I navigated that decently well. All right, final thoughts. I've been hiking a good bit more, uh, a lot lately, actually, because these uh, qu- quarantine, which I haven't quarantined much really, but uh, one of the things I have been trying to do is get outside more. And it's been a glorious spring, you know, here in the southeast. I had a, a friend say, maybe it's not maybe it's not been a better spring than usual. Maybe it's just people are appreciating it more because of the circumstance we're in. And I don't think that's it at all. I actually looked. Usually by this time, we've already had several days in the 80s. This is the only part about living in the south I really don't like. I, I sort of want to move with some regularity because it gets hot here. Like the second week of April, and it's hot till Thanksgiving, and I just die and swelter in the heat, and I prefer cold weather. And it's actually been a glorious spring. We've, we've had cool, cool mornings, cold mornings, into wonderful days. And me, my friend Shakai, my two nephews, Caleb and Kobe, we recently tried to go up to something called Big Rock Mountain in Pickens. I took us the wrong way because I am not an outdoorsman and I don't know how to navigate. And we ended up on another place called Cedar Rock instead. But there was, I noticed, 
up on Cedar Rock, several places along the trail and up on the top of that wannabe mountain, rocks stacked on top of each other in like decorative ways, in creative ways. I said to Kobe, my 15-year-old nephew, Kobe, how do you think those rocks got that way? And Kobe says back to me, people, someone stacked them like that. And something occurred to me there about how instinctive the argument from design is when it comes to faith. And I respect secularists and folks outside of the faith who have other arguments for why the world looks designed, and I think they've done a good job. They're intellectual arguments. But just the instinct, the instinct of something fairly simple, seven or eight rocks stacked on top of each other, just instinct, how'd that happen? Just that little bit of order, how'd that come together? Well, intelligence did it. And then I do think, I, I don't think it's just an, it's, it's an unintellectual position. I think it's an instinctual position that is then backed up by the logic. Well, then if I look then at DNA and we map it, and it's very complex and how it writes out who we are, it's way more complex than eight rocks stacked on top of each other. Well, an intelligence did that. Not a, a blind force, but an intelligence did it. When I look at the, the universe, the, the distance between us and the sun, us and the moon, the sun and the rest of the planets, the size of Jupiter and how it affects gravitational pull on asteroids and the space debris and all that stuff. I look at it and go, oh, well, there's got a, that's pretty cool. That's intelligence. It's way more intelligent than eight rocks sitting on top of each other. And there was just a good moment up there on that mountain, plus with a good time with friends and some folks I love. Had a good moment there of, this is a good world the Lord has given us. It is designed and ordered, and that design and that order is a testament to his goodness, his sovereignty, and a whole other reason to worship him by getting out into nature. Thanks for listening, everybody. I am grateful that you do. I would be even more grateful if you shared the show with others on social media. I'll be back with another new edition of the Core Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.